They appear in this text as well. And so Jesus is continuing to reveal himself. And why is Jesus doing this? We need to constantly remind ourselves of the basic reason for what this is all about. Why is he doing this? What are we to get from this? And the answer is, John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we keep going back to that, don't we? Back to that, and back to that, and back to that. The answer is that you might see, that you might believe, and that you might be saved, right? This is how God works to save. This is the way God always works to save. We see him, we believe in him, and we are saved, right? And we continue to look at him, continue to believe in him, and persevere to the end. Now, one of the ways to really get to know someone, right? We said that Jesus is revealing himself to us. One of the ways to really get to know someone, if you want to know someone, you need to know what they are passionate about, right? You need to know what they are zealous about. Just imagine following anybody for like five days. Imagine someone following you for like five days. I don't know why five, but just a number of days. And observing what you're passionate about. What do you pursue? Like, you stay up late every night watching the Red Sox playoffs. What does that say about you, right? What we are passionate about says a lot about us, doesn't it? If this is the case, if, it's the, if, if it is true that what we're passionate about says a lot about us, then it would be interesting to know what we're passionate about, then how do you identify what someone is really passionate or zealous about? And I think one way of identifying what someone is really passionate about is by finding out what makes them happy and what makes them angry, right? You can really find out what makes someone tick. It's almost like a window into someone's heart, what makes them happy and what makes them angry. Isn't that true? <laughs> well, the same is true of Jesus. If you really want to know Jesus as he's revealing himself to us, if you really want to know who he is, then you need to know what makes him happy and you need to know what makes him angry. Let, let, me, let me give you an example of this. When Jesus sees great faith, particularly among the Gentiles, what is his response? He marvels. It makes him happy. He rejoices, right? When he sees faith, Jesus rejoices. Well, in this story, we're going to see what makes Jesus angry. Not only are we going to see what makes him angry, but we are going to learn the implications of what this means for us. We will see what makes him angry, how angry he gets, what gives him the right to be angry, and what this means for you. And so we will continue to see Jesus so that we can respond with belief and be saved. So what makes Jesus angry? Verses 12 through 13 sets the story by telling us that Jesus went 
to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's where you would go, right? You would go to Jerusalem if you were to celebrate the Passover. And so there would be this huge um, gathering of people in Jerusalem at this time. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem. What Jesus observes going into the temple is what makes him angry. And we see this in verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, if you were just to look at this from a very practical standpoint, right, we are just to look at what was going on, and we were thought, um, well, I mean, it was kind of convenient the way things were set up in the temple here, weren't they? I mean, people were traveling a long ways, and they had to make sacrifices. And so it would have been so inconvenient and difficult for them to bring their animals with them the whole way. It would have been a lot of extra work and very difficult. And so it would have been very practical for them to be able to go to the temple and be able to find an animal there that they could buy and they could use for their sacrifice. Not only that, but having money changers in the temple would have been incredibly helpful and, and make things incredibly more easy for the people. They, they needed a particular coin in order to pay the temple tax. Everyone 20 and above had to pay the temple tax. Every male 20 and above had to pay the temple tax. And, and so they needed a, a particular coin because there were a lot of coins that just didn't quite make the, the standard of what was required. And so this coin called a Tyrian was required to be paid. And so there would be those inside the temple who would be able to exchange whatever they had for the Tyrian. With, with a little extra money on the side, but they would have it available right there to be able to pay the temple tax, right? Now, you might think that Jesus might be a little sympathetic to what's going on here. At least the people are going to the temple and are able to make sacrifices. It could be worse, right? At least the leaders are putting some effort in, even if their motivation might have been a little questionable, Right? But Jesus' actions here indicate that he is, in fact, only angry at what he saw. He has no sympathy at all for what is taking place here. So what does Jesus do, and what does he say? He makes a whip. Imagine Jesus making a whip, right? He drives out the sheep and the oxen driving away the business that was going on inside of the temple. He drives it, the business, he, he drives it right out of the temple. He pour, pours out the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. That would have disrupted the business. All the business that was going on would have been completely disrupted. It would have been chaos. Then he says verbally, I'm sure he didn't say it in a nice, calm voice. Remove all the business. Remove all the market from my father's house. So we need to ask ourselves, what makes Jesus so angry? <laughs> and you should be able to easily identify from the way that was described what they were doing exactly what makes Jesus angry. What makes Jesus angry is the business 
that was going on inside his father's house. It had no right to be there. The business did not belong in his father's house. They had turned his father's house into a marketplace. And they had devoted the space that was supposed to be used for worship, and they used it for the market. And the contrast here is between the father's place and the market, right? Or the trade. That's the contrast going on. They have nothing to do with each other. (laughs) Now we have to be careful when we're trying to understand what makes Jesus angry here that we don't jump to conclusions when we're looking at this passage. One of the the temptations is to run and look at uh, another temple cleansing that happens later on in Jesus' ministry. And you can find that in, uh, in, in the other Gospels. Towards the end of his ministry, he cleanses the temple again. I believe it's a second temple cleansing. One of our temptations is to look at that and say, oh, they were extorting the people. They were taking advantage of the people, right? And that is the problem that Jesus is angry at. And that could have been going on, but that is not what Jesus says here, right? So we've got to be careful of taking that story and applying it to this one as being the reason why Jesus was angry. The only problem stated here is that there was a market going on in the temple. Now, is there a place for business? Is there a place for exchanging of the temple tax? Is there a place for the selling of oxen? Of course there is. There is a place for that. That's a good thing to do but not in the temple. It does not belong in the temple. The Father's house is a house of worship. Now let's look at this and understand what is the root problem going on here. You know, we can look at this and see, okay, they were selling and doing all this stuff in the, in the temple. That's bad. But what is the root of the problem here? Let's get down to the root of it. Otherwise, this will really do us no good. So if we were to trace the problem to its root, you would find that the religious leaders were in love with money. They were greedy, and they loved money more than they loved God. That is a big problem. Now, really, the problem could be money, or it could be anything else, couldn't it? Our idols take many shapes and many sizes. In this case, it was money. But anything else that replaces God as our chief, supreme, primary love of our lives is in the same situation that these people are in. This makes God angry. This makes God angry. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Jesus was actually constantly critical of the religious leaders over their love for their money. In Matthew 23, 25, we read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Notice the greed. Greed. Oh, you look pretty good on the outside, but inside you are full of self-indulgence. But there's something worse going on here. There's something that makes it worse, I should say. 
They were using religion as a cover-up for greed. That just compounds the problems, doesn't it? They're hiding their greed under a religious veneer. And this makes God more angry. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on today, isn't there? Religious ritual that is used as a cover for our love for money. We see that all the time, especially in this health and wealth gospel that's promoted from televisions all over the place. Well, there's something even worse going on here. So their hearts are in love with money. They are appearing religious while all the time using their religion as a cover-up for greed. But further, to make matters worse, they're leading others astray. They are preventing others from worshiping God. Can you imagine how angry God gets at this? Instead of leading others to worship, they were standing in the way of others worshiping God. They were distracting them. They were preventing them from worship. And by the way, this is always the case. Whenever you're a lover of money or anything outside of God and you're a religious leader, you're going to lead people astray. So don't become a religious leader if you don't love God supremely. God is going to get very angry at you. You can't lead people to worship God if you don't love God. They were keeping people from fulfilling the very purpose that God created the temple for. They were standing in the way of worship. They were distracting, distorting, and prohibiting the worship of the people, and this makes God angry. My question for you is, let's state the, opposite, the, the obvious here. What was the temple designed for? What was God's purpose for the temple? And the answer is, the temple was designed to encourage and lead people to worship God. That was the purpose of it. And the religious leaders were supposed to lead people to worship God. They were to direct them to worship God the way he had prescribed. This means that anything that obstructs worship makes God angry. When we value things above God, we obscure the worship of God and God gets angry at that. What would God-pleasing worship have looked like? We need to ask ourselves, what would it look like to have God-pleasing worship? Well, God-pleasing worship is worship that honors God, right? It's worship that magnifies the worth and value of God. His infinite worth is exalted and magnified and lifted up. It leads people to worship God. That's what worship is. So God-pleasing worship will lead others to see God's infinite worth. And you can't do this if you don't see the infinite worth of God yourself. God-honoring worship can only happen when we see God through His Word. God's Word is where the magnificence, the revelation of God is made known to us. And not only the revelation of God, but our great and desperate need for Him. It never makes us look good. You could search long and wide in the Bible for things that would build up our self-esteem. You'll never find it. It crushes us. 
And it magnifies the infinite worth of God so that you will worship him. So that you will delight in the God who is of infinite value. So that you will adore this God who is infinitely adorable. So that you will commune with God. So that you will cry out to God and ask him for deliverance when you are in desperation. That's worship. When you fail to do that, you're not worshiping God as you should. When we go through desperate times, we're supposed to cry out to him, say, God, I need you, help me. God has designed that opportunity so that you would worship him. When we repent to God with broken hearts and embrace forgiveness, that's worship of God. Don't prevent worship by failing to repent of your sin. That is worship that we owe to God. We say, God, you are right, forgive me. God delights in such worship. And the people were being prevented from worshiping God because of the religious leaders. And that angers God. How angry does Jesus really get over this? Is it really that big of a deal? Does it really matter all that much? Well, look again at what Jesus does in light of how angry he is. Well, remember we said he constructs a whip. He, he creates a whip, right? And with the whip, you can imagine Jesus running after the animals. Imagine him whipping them. And they're running out. The animal activists would have a huge problem with this. Imagine Jesus chasing these huge, awkward oxen as they stumble through the building. And he doesn't merely drive out the animals, but also the people. He drives them out of there. This would have created incredible chaos. What a scene Jesus makes. But then, that's not all he does, is it? He throws the money on the ground, turns over the money changers' tables. And so you can imagine the money changers running down to pick up their money and to, and to gather it all up as the, the coins scatter all over the ground. Coins, like, go everywhere. You ever do that? You ever drop a coin? The thing just rolls? It would have been chaos. It would have been crazy. All this noise, all this chaos. The place was packed, I'm sure. And then he says to them, take it away. Get this out of here. Get out of my father's house. Who does this and who speaks this way? Well, an angry person speaks this way. A very angry person. Someone who is furious, who is white hot with anger. And it's kind of shocking, isn't it? Because it doesn't naturally fit our understanding of what Jesus is like. This, this just doesn't easily fit into the categories of we think Jesus should be like. We often think of Jesus as being this kind of a weak and effeminate type of person, right? At least that's the culture and the way he's portrayed. Who is most concerned about hurting people's feelings than anything else, right? We think of Jesus oftentimes in this culture as someone who is most concerned about hurting people's feelings. His number one priority is not to hurt anybody. Someone you would never pick for your football team. But that is not what Jesus is like. And you might say, but Jesus is portrayed as meek and humble in spirit and gentle. And the answer is yes, he is. According to 11, Matthew 11, 28-29, he is gentle, meek, and mild. That's true. And we see this in the way he treats everybody and his patience, right? He has patience with everybody. That's amazing gentleness. 
We see this especially in his response to the humble and contrite, right? Jesus is particularly gentle towards those who are humble and contrite, those who are crushed by their sins. Jesus comes to them as this humble and gentle, sorry, gentle and contrite, just this, 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 this meek Savior who is for them and cares for them and saves them. But that's not all he is. He's also holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, judge. He is the lion and also the lamb. This means he is always angry at sin. Yes, angry at the sinner all the time. One day his patience will end and his anger will crush the proud. He will crush the proud. Jesus will crush the proud. It is easy to overemphasize one view at the expense of other. But they're both true. We need to have our Jesus shaped by scriptures and not our preferences. And what I want you to see is that Jesus' reaction here, and get this if you get one thing, Jesus' action here in his anger that wells up within him that caused him to do this incredibly crazy thing shows us how passionate Jesus is for worship. Jesus is passionate for worship. He is passionate with a God-sized passion for worship. And so he should be. The degree of anger Jesus shows here should not shock us one bit. If we know who Jesus is, instead we should be amazed at how reserved Jesus is in expressing his anger. We should be amazed at how reserved Jesus is here. You see, his actions are mild and reserved compared to what we see throughout the Bible when such circumstances take place. God, every once in a while, gives us a glimpse of his hot, white-hot anger. And so he is very mild in this passage compared to those situations. His actions are mild and reserved compared to the wrath that will one day come upon such people. These people should be thankful that they escaped with their lives and did not face the fullness of God's judgment upon them that they deserved. I'm sure they weren't thankful, but they should have been. Just as his healing is a foretaste of the coming kingdom, when we see Jesus heal and do these miraculous things, we get a foretaste of the glorious kingdom that is coming. And it is awesome. But in a similar way, so does his little pictures of his wrath and his anger give us a foretaste of the final judgment that is coming. And it will be infinitely greater for those who do not repent and turn than what we see in the temple here. So this should be a warning for each one of us. Turn to Christ and be saved before it's too late. Jesus' anger reveals to the disciples who he is. You might think that his anger would disqualify him in some ways, right? Whenever we see anger, we think, oh, that disqualifies him, and oftentimes it does, doesn't it? But instead, here it qualifies him in regards to his identity. It reveals who he is. We see that in verse 17. 
says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. When the disciples see his eruption of anger, what comes to their mind is Psalm 69, verse 9. And if you look at Psalm 69, verse 9, the psalmist is responding to his zeal, to the response that he's getting to his zeal for the worship of God. He is zealous for the Father's house. And the response is that he is literally being consumed. He is facing persecution. He is hated. He is attacked. And the result is he's being consumed. He's being destroyed for his zeal for the Father's house. The the reason for his opposition is because he is zealous for God, which doesn't make sense to us, right? When we're zealous for God, we would expect the very opposite, but no, he's being consumed. And so the, the disciples, when they see what's going on, identify that passage with Jesus. And they say, this is exactly what's going on here. He is the ultimate sufferer because of his zeal that is consuming him. This means the disciples were able to identify Jesus because of his anger rather than the other way around. It doesn't disqualify him. It actually reveals that he is the one who he claims to be, that this is the Messiah, that this is the one who can save us. And so his anger is just another piece or portion. His righteous anger is another identification pointing to the the reality that this is the one who he claims to be. And in fact, his zeal would literally consume him and lead to his death, wouldn't it? His zeal would be what attracted the opposition. They would crucify him because of his zeal. When we have a similar zeal in our own lives, which we should have, shouldn't we? And it should be growing. When we have a, a similar zeal, it identifies us with Christ as well, doesn't it? And we should know that when we have a similar zeal, it's going to consume us. We're going to suffer persecution just as Jesus did. So praise God that we can follow in his footsteps and that it confirms rather than denies that we are in relationship with Jesus, that we are his children when we have this zeal that Jesus has. It's God in us, shaping us and molding us to be like Christ. Someone might ask, well, what gives him the right to do this? What gives him the right to get angry in this way and to act this way? You have to have some kind of authority backing you up, right? Well, this is what the religious leaders ask him. They ask, what gives you the right to do, su- the right to do such a thing as this? Give us a sign to back it up, right? In verse 18, uh, we read this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? If you have such authority, they demand it, actually. The the language here is a demand. Show us your credentials. Give us a sign. And we know that they're not actually looking for any kind of evidence because they wouldn't believe no matter what Jesus showed to them. You see, it's typical of those who are trapped like an animal in the corner. What do they do? When you trap someone, not in the sense of trying to destroy them, but you're trying to help them, right? 
and, and you approach them with a sin in their lives. It is almost every time the case when their hearts are not right, the response is that they attack you. They will find something to accuse you of. I've experienced that, right? And I'm sure I've done that to others as well. <laughs> but that's what we do, don't we? We attack others. We find some way that they've approached us that's not right, and we say, well, you didn't approach me right. You didn't do this right, <laughs> right? Well, that's exactly what they're doing, and throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, they will attack and fight and destroy him because he's exposing their problem. But what we need to understand is they're not really interested and what Jesus has to give them. But what's amazing is that Jesus nevertheless offers them not only a sign, but the greatest of all signs in verse 19. And 21 explains what that sign is. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. But he was speaking, this is verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Isn't it great to have the privilege of having the answer key right in front of us here? He tells us what he meant when he said these words that he was talking about the temple being his body. Now Jesus prophesies that they, meaning the Jews, would destroy the temple. And we know that the Romans destroyed the physical temple, but the temple of his body, which he was talking about, would literally be destroyed by them. Their hatred for the truth would consume the truth giver and would crucify him. And the sign he gives is that he will raise the temple in three days. What an incredible sign Jesus gives. And we know what he's referring to here, don't we? We don't have to, have to be explained what he's talking about here. He's talking about his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. That he would be raised from the dead. What he is saying is that the sign of my authority is the resurrection from the dead. The sign that gives irrevocable proof the sign that cannot be denied is my resurrection from the dead. It proves that I have absolute and sole authority to regulate worship and to do anything else I want. This is the sign of signs. So this is the sign that Jesus has left for the church for eternal ages to come. And I want us to look at it. I want us to be thankful that God has given us this sign today. He has the right to regulate our worship and the right to direct us. He is our Lord and our Master and our Savior. Some might say, like their Jewish leaders, prove, Jesus, that you have authority. I don't know if you've ever had anyone say that to you. How can you prove that he has the authority to tell me what to do? Well, he has left us with that proof in the resurrection from the dead. It's an eternal testimony to his authority. And he's not going to die over and over and over again to show us it. If they don't believe this, based on the testimony of scriptures, then they won't believe anything. Benjamin Warfield writes this, Our Lord himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as his single and sufficient credential. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The resurrection proved that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished what he claimed to have come to earth to accomplish. 
If it can be shown that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead, as the early Christians believed and as the scripture claims, then the Christian faith rests upon an impregnable foundation. And this means, furthermore, (laughs) that we don't have to wait for the temple to be rebuilt. It has been rebuilt. Jesus is the temple. Not surprisingly, Jesus' words at face value makes no sense to anyone. Such words are either to be attributed to an insane person or to God himself. And we need to understand that those are the only two options here when it comes to Jesus and what he says. Either he's insane or he's God, and we better bow to him. There are no other options today. And so, they say it has taken us 46 years to build the temple. And you will rebuild it in three three days? That's crazy talk. That is crazy talk. How ridiculous would have these words sounded to the Jewish leaders. But in reality, not even the disciples could connect what he's talking about. They couldn't connect the dots. They couldn't get it. And it wasn't until after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that even they were able to understand it and to get it. The Holy Spirit would enable them to understand what Jesus said and to recall it to their minds. So what does this mean for us? Is there anything we can take from this story? And if there's one thing we can take from this story is that we are responsible to worship God in a way that honors Him. We should be greatly concerned about our worship. That is the number one concern we have when we come and gather together and throughout the week when we go our way. So what can, we, what can we grasp about worship as we come to a conclusion here? First of all, God cares passionately about worship, and so should you. This is why you exist. You exist to worship God. Whether in our daily lives or when we come to church, this is what we are to be doing. Worship should be our number one agenda. God's passion for worship should be our passion for worship. We should get angry over what he gets angry at. We should be happy over what he gets happy at. When there is faith, faith is worshiping God. (laughs) Faith is attributing the glory to God. Faith and worship cannot be separated. Just as faith and unbelief is failure, or unbelief is failure to worship God and attribute the glory to God. Amazing the way God has set up salvation. It glorifies and worships and honors God in the very act of our salvation by believing and trusting in him. And so we should be passionate about seeing faith in those around us and it should make us happy and make us rejoice. And when it is obscured and it is messed up and not the way it should be, that should make us sad and even angry. How often do we get so distracted? God does not only care about worship, he determines how he is to be worshipped, not us. And throughout the Bible, we see that God regulates worship. Look at the temple and the way God was so detailed and so specific about the way he is to be worshipped. But not only does he have the right to prescribe worship, but he has the right to tell us he is the the only one who has the right to prescribe worship. He is the only one who can tell us how to do things. No pastor, no pastor, no, no, no religious leader, no dynamic preacher has the right to set aside God's word and tell you what to do. Worship is not something he says to us, do whatever you, 
you want. Do whatever feels good to you. Or even do whatever the expert says. And sadly, many people today assume that vigorous activity, sincere activity in their own ways of worship is somehow meaningful to God in itself. A lot of people spend a lot of energy and work hard, even following experts, thinking that God is somehow favorable to their worship. The only way to worship God in a way that pleases Him is to bow to Him and to do things His way. Bruce Milne accurately says this, For Jesus, worship is a matter of the gravest importance, and as the Messianic King, He claims lordship over it. A significant portion of the Bible is devoted to the regulation of worship, and we are sadly misled if we imagine that the quality of what we offer in worship services or the devotion with which we participate are matters of peripheral importance. We need to do things his way. The problem is that we have failed to worship God the way he requires. And this is really the definition of sin, isn't it? Corrupt worship is the definition of sin. It's a failure to give God the honor that's due his name, right? And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Which is true, isn't it? But that's not really the full picture of it. You see, we don't only do sin, we are sin. We are sinners. Our hearts are, 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 are filled, are, are corrupted, are full of sin. So it's not just that we do a sin here or a sin there, although that's true, but we are completely sinful. We don't just do sin, we have sinful hearts. See, we have a big problem, and the problem is a heart issue. We love the wrong things. We love money. We love our sinful pleasures. We love doing things our own way. But we do not naturally value God. And so, our hearts need to be changed, don't they? And that takes a miracle. There was a living testimony throughout history of man's failure to worship God. From the Garden of Eden, it began to the temple that we see today, to what we see going on all around us, even our own lives. Continuous testimony to the truthfulness of God's word that we are corrupt and our worship is corrupt. So praise God. God has given us an answer to our worship problem. Amen, yes. God has given us an answer to our worship problem. That should give us great cause for rejoicing today. He is the true and living, indestructible temple. All who come to him by faith are able to offer acceptable worship to God. That's the only way you can offer acceptable worship to God is in the temple of Jesus Christ through faith in him. You enter the temple through faith. And in that way, our worship is acceptable to God. Through him, we meet with God in a greater way than the temple that was physically here on earth. It is acceptable because he gives us his own righteousness. That is an alien righteousness, a standing before God that means that in his sight we are righteous. Amazing. And so our worship is acceptable. It is acceptable because he gives us a new heart that begins to love love and treasure him so that our worship, when it comes out of us, is out of a sincere and real love for him where before it wasn't there at all. A right standing, a new heart. Amazing grace. It is acceptable because he gives us eyes to see him supremely and supremely valuable and infinitely worth. 
We enter this temple not by our works, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And through this temple we commune with God and we are saved. There will never be a need for a, a less physical temple, for Jesus is the final temple. Look at Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And that will be worship on steroids, right? For eternity. If you do not worship God his way, if you refuse to bow to him, then be warned. The temple cleansing of this passage will happen to you, but in a much greater way for eternity. Jesus will not come to you with whip or cords or loving chastisement. Instead, listen to these words, he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. Do you have a heart that worships God? Is this a church that worships God? We need to ask ourselves those questions. Have you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to the true temple through his finished work? Are you here because you want to worship God? And the question of worship is always this. What do you love supremely? Do you love money? Do you love family? Do you love comfort? Or do you love God? So ask God today. God, give me a glimpse of your glory. Help me to see your infinite worth so I can be what you created me to be and I can do what I've been created to do. There is no greater purpose for our lives and doing this is the only path to true joy and to being who God created us to be. Someone who was visiting last week from out of state said they looked at various churches on the website about where they're gonna go. And one of the, and they ended up here, interesting. <laughs> but anyway, one of the websites of the churches in our area was filled with fundraising things. It was just one fundraising thing after the other, according to the sky. And he thought that was a little strange. And my response is, yes, that is a little strange. And the point of this passage is not that you can't do fundraising things. That's not the point of this passage at all. But we do see what's promoted on that website is an incredible indication of what goes on in that church and what they think is important, isn't it? And so the question is, what do our lives say is important to us? What does this church say is important to us? Are we a church that is gathered? Are we a people who love to worship and praise God? My prayer for this church is that the Lord would give us a similar zeal for worship for God's house. The same zeal that Jesus had. And if God chooses to give us such a zeal, then I can assure you that with this zeal would come a consuming response from the world. In other words, you will face the same persecution and struggle and difficulty that Jesus faced. And praise God that we get the privilege of following in the path of our Savior. Let's pray. Let's pray that God gives us a holy zeal for his name. Let's pray. Dear Father, we confess 
that our appetites, our desires for you are often half, not even that, filled. Lord, we hardly desire you as we should. We, our, our view of your glory is often so weak and so small. Lord, I pray that you would give us a view of your infinite worth. I pray that you would cause us to be zealous for worship, for your name, for the praise of your infinite name. Help us to love you supremely. Lord, there is no one who compares with you. There is no one as glorious and magnificent as you are. There is no one as lovely as you are. Lord, give us eyes to see the reality of your, great, of your greatness. And Lord, help us to worship you this week in response. May we be worshipers of God. And may you be pleased with our worship. Lord, increase our faith. And Lord, we thank you for allowing us to follow in the path of our Savior. Thank you for the persecution and the trouble that we will experience along the way. But Lord, may we faithfully worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.